What would you do if everyone said they heard your trailer a hundred times? You'd probably make a new one. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, The Ringer's first ever true crime pod. We've been hunting a con man for a few weeks now, and our hunt is coming to an end. Schemes, heartbreak, how to put on a wire. We've covered all this and more, but there are still a few surprises left. Binge The Wedding Scammer wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome to the Ringer F1 show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am your host, Megan Schuster, and we are here today to talk about the last race of the 2023 F1 season, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Max Verstappen wins his 19th race of the year, completing a very dominant season for both him and Red Bull. Charles Leclerc comes in second, and George Russell takes the final podium place in third. Rounding out the rest of the top 10 are Sergio Perez, Lando Norris, Oscar Piastri, Fernando Alonso, Yuki Sonoda, Lewis Hamilton, and Lance Stroll. There's a lot to talk about with the race and also with regards to the drivers and the constructors championship, the season as a whole ton to get into and joining me to talk about all of it is Spanners ready Spanners. It's the last race of the season. How are you feeling? Oh, it's flown by, hasn't it? No, it hasn't. It's been a really, (laughs) really long season. So I'm a little bit torn because in a way, I think a lot of people are going, Oh, that did feel like a long season, especially since the constructors and the drivers championship was wrapped up quite a while ago and people are looking forward and going, wow, there's going to probably be even more races in the future. But even this season, the fact that in the last six weeks, we've had five races and I think two of them have been sprint weekends as well. So it's been like a lot and I'm torn because part of me says that was too many. But then I think back to when I started watching F1 and there's 16 races a year I used to get so kind of frustrated. They're like, oh, there's not another race for three weeks. And oh, there's four months between the end of the season and then the start of the next season. So as much as there's definitely too many races, we'll get to next Sunday and I'll go, oh, there's not another race and there won't be for ages. So it's, it's a conundrum because any given Sunday, I want there to be F1 on. Yet I can acknowledge that 
there's been too much F1 this season. Well, fortunately for you, there are only 97 days between now and the the, the official start of next season. And that doesn't even include preseason testing, you know, qualifying and, and whatever else for Bahrain. So oh, doesn't it? it's, uh, oh, okay. it's, it's coming up a lot faster, I think, than, than I'm emotionally prepared for. No, that's fine because we're getting right into Christmas now. So we're into our, our Christmas shopping. I've got to find out how to turn on the heating because I don't actually know. It's my first actual cold European winter for two years. That will run down a bit the clock of the non-F1 time. And then by the time you're rubbing your eyes and you're into your January depression and you've you've done a, a snap decision to take up gym classes or join a kabaddi league to shake off your Christmas gut... By the time all of that is finished, we're then staring down the barrel of testing. And I, I actually love winter testing. Whenever they broadcast it, you know, a, a chunk of like two, four days of testing, nothing's really happening, but you can just be at your desk with the sound of Formula One cars and occasionally look over. And, and that's, a, that's a good soft launch into the new season. And we've got 97 days of hoping that someone will bring the challenge to Red Bull, who won the Constructors' Championship by over double the points of the next team. Yeah, it was uh, not not close. Not, I mean, it was never close. Like we we knew this from pretty early on in the season. But a couple things to note as far as Max Verstappen's season specifically, because today I saw him reach a number of milestones. He has officially led for over one thousand laps this season, which is the most ever and never been done before in an F one season. And you know, we're comparing apples to oranges a bit because there are so many more races on the calendar these days than there have been in the past but still a, a pretty incredible achievement for a driver who's just 26 years old. He also now has the third most wins in F1 history with 54 behind Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher. We would be remiss, I think, if we didn't just take a second to talk about what this season has meant for Max and, and for Red Bull as a whole. I know we've had pretty much the entire calendar year to, to discuss Max and the RB19 specifically, but this is one of the most dominant seasons we've seen in F1, right? Sort of, but it's like me saying that I'm better than my great-great-granddad because at the age of 43, I'm now older than about 4 billion people. <laughs> and he was only older than about 2 billion people at the age of 43. So look, there is absolutely no doubting that this season, Red Bull have delivered one of the most dominant cars in history. And Max Verstappen has been the driver that has, has driven them there. Yeah, so you have to remember that Max Verstappen was there for a lot of not winning years. He was there when the Death Star was, in fact, Mercedes, and they were developing well. And even when they weren't out there winning or pushing for the championship, when it was Ferrari pushing for the championship, Red Bull was still operationally one of the best teams, and Max Verstappen was still performing as one of the best drivers. And this is kind of like a reward year. And this happens in Formula One. Like, Lewis Hamilton had reward years. You know, he got through Rosberg, he got through Vettel, and then he got to sit on a throne and not really do too much to beat Bottas in, in 19 and 20. And that's the kind of era that Verstappen's in now. So I don't want to take away anything from that journey, but the record's tumbling in this specific year, which is the longest F1 season with the most laps, I assume, with all the sprint races. I, I don't want to get too carried away with those records. So yeah, he's he's led a thousand laps, but has any driver had the opportunity to to lead a thousand laps before? I don't know. To me, those kind of statistics are a little bit annoying. Exactly the same as world driver championships are a bit annoying. So Schumacher and Hamilton sit there with seven world driver championships. Does that necessarily make them 
the best drivers that have ever raced in Formula One. Statistically, it does, yeah. And I'm a Lewis Hamilton fan, so it would be easy to grab onto that and go, Lewis Hamilton, well, he's won seven. But also, those drivers had access to title-winning cars, you know, more than more than anyone. And so, you know, to say, would Fernando Alonso have had that opportunity if he'd have had those cars? Would Alan Prost have had the opportunity to go on and get seven world titles? So I think you can get hung up on those statistics. I would, I would rather look at a, a driver's performance and the driver's journey. And so, yeah, I do see this as a, a kind of, well, I don't want to compare him to Thanos, but, you know, Thanos sits on his rock and sighs as a grateful universe sparkles in the sky or whatever. That's the season that Verstappen's having. I think one of the most impressive parts of this to me is just the consistency across the entire season. I think he's the only driver who completed every lap of the season. No DNFs, no, uh, you know, kind of weird, like did not start, no mechanical issues. So that's that's partially like a credit to Red Bull too for building such a consistent car that he had no issues with that. No major accidents. His worst finish was fifth in Singapore. After that, it was two second place finishes. There are only three races that he didn't win, which is... Pretty, pretty impressive. I, I know, you know, we can we can shake our heads and, and look at how much better this car was than all of the other cars on the grid probably put together. But I think that consistency should should get him a little extra credit. I'm not trying to take away any credit. If anything, I'm saying compare Max Verstappen's performance this year to Max Verstappen's performances in previous years. Sure. You know, what, did he have to drive better in 2021 than he had to this season? Yeah, sure. And was he tested more in 2021 than this season? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, whilst, you know, there are lots of championships like this in Formula One, this isn't going to go down as his great championship year. Sure. This is Vettel 2013. You know, this is Hamilton 2020. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, the most exciting fight today was not actually on track, but rather between Mercedes and Ferrari for number two in the constructors. And there were a lot of a lot of in-race shenanigans because of this. Uh, so Mercedes came into the race four points ahead of Ferrari. All four drivers seem to be taking this incredibly seriously, even more so than their own performances. We got sort of a late message from George asking the team how Lewis was getting on. And then when they got back to him, like, oh, yeah, he has great pace, is is doing really well. And George basically told them to F off and was like, you know that I'm asking about like positioning for. They didn't want to tell him, no. did they? They didn't want him to do any fancy thinking about it. They were just like, mate, just drive. You're all right. They refused, <laughs> flat out refused to tell him and said, you know, we're all just doing the best race that we can have. And that's all that, you know, the effort that we're putting into this. We also saw Charles on the last lap temporarily give up his second place positioning to give Checo a boost to try and get him ultimately into third place with a five second penalty ahead of George. Wasn't enough for Ferrari. Mercedes won by three points. But were you surprised at all? how invested these guys were in a constructor's place that wasn't first? Yeah, a, li- a little bit, actually. So, but, but I think they were. So I think the messages have, have come down to both teams that like, yeah, this is important. The shareholders, I'm sure, see that as important. There was a lot of talk about it being just a status symbol the next season, that you've got that garage position up the road. But it did almost feel like the drivers were taking it more seriously than the pit crew. So. <laughs> yeah. Leclerc was treating it, yeah, like this massive do or die final showdown. Shall I park my car horizontally on top of Perez and then Russell won't be able to sneak under the gearbox? So there was that. And yeah, like Russell kind of got told to can it a little bit. Yeah, he was talking, oh, what's Hamilton's position? What do I just drive, George? We're okay. We're okay. 
George Russell had an outstanding performance all weekend and last weekend. So he's finished the season really strong. And I think he was kind of keen to be the hero of Abu Dhabi who brought home the Mercedes 100%. P2. Like he's very, he's very media conscious and he likes to create, you know, a, a narrative. He, you, he knows he's part of an F1 story, you know, and he's hype, he seems to be hyper aware of that. So I think he was trying to build this, you know, this heroic charge to P2 up in his head, which I guess after finishing, what, 100 and... No, he's on 175 points with Hamilton on 234 that gap, less than 60 points, is is actually one of the smallest gaps we've had all season. So he's had a late charge and kind of really contributed at the end to this P2 position. But really, Mercedes should have been so comfortably ahead in P2. George Russell's race pace has let a lot of points go and there's a big gap to Lewis Hamilton in the standings. But Lewis Hamilton has thrown away maybe four, five weekends where he's thrown away like a, a good dozen or so points. I don't know. At a guess, I reckon Hamilton's easily through his own errors has thrown away 40 points this season. I haven't actually done the totting up, but it feels like every weekend, week in, week out, it's scruffy and he's left stuff on the table. Yeah. I mean, if you were going to ask me, you know, all points aside, what was the second best car on the grid this year? It was Mercedes, hands down, in, Overall, terms of, yeah. in terms of race pace. I mean, Ferrari obviously has, you know, their kind of tricky qualifying setup down, and, and Charles is going to get, you know, a handful of pole positions here and there because he's a great driver and their car is quick in one lap. But Mercedes overall is is the second best car, no matter how much Lewis and George have both collectively <laughs> com complained about it throughout the season. Yeah, because their standard is high. So when they complain, they complain because it's not a championship winning car. But they've they've had the machinery. And yet Saturdays have just been horrible for Mercedes in general. And then when Lewis hasn't had the position up the grid, he's just not dealt with that that midfield even today. So even today he ends up, I think he hit Gasly twice. So I think they made contact on lap one. Yeah. And then Hamilton ended up getting himself in a position to be shoved off by Perez as well, going in the outside of turn one. And then... Obviously, Gasly had that bit of a lockup and, and Hamilton still, that looked very avoidable from Hamilton. I, I'm not going to go as far as saying that was Hamilton's fault. Clearly, you know, there's an issue with the car ahead, but I don't think Hamilton was even making an overtake. So I don't know, that felt avo avoidable and it's all just been very scruffy. And even in the last two races where you go, well, he's had race pace, he's been overtaking people, but then it's, he's not delivering and he's not having a clean weekend and he's not getting through Saturday how he should. And, and by the way, Hamilton fan, big Hamilton fan here. I, I'm, I'm now kind of thinking, well, if they do have a championship car next season, can they clean that up? Because I think even, even 2017 with Vettel and Vettel making those mistakes, I think if Hamilton has a season like he had this season in 2017, maybe he doesn't pick that title up. Do you think Lewis was just sort of mentally, I don't want to say checked out because even him being checked out as, you know, one of one of the better drivers on the grid, but it just felt like he was emotionally not really in it through the, you know, second half of the year. I'm sure that was, was a lot to do with car frustrations and knowing that he's not really in the hunt at all to like win a race, which is where he's been through most of his career. Do you think that's just what it was or... Yeah, I mean, he seemed to be saying that out loud on the interviews, didn't he? So in all the interviews, especially after qualifying, I think, right, he was saying that there was something wrong with his car. They've got the same setup, but they weren't getting the same readings. And Anthony Davison on his Skypad was pointing to, to times that the car was reacting weirdly to inputs. One thing I did notice about Hamilton's car today was that just even on the formation lap and on lap one, 
the rear wasn't planted. And then you saw at the end with Sonoda, the rear just stepped out on him, which on what should have been a fairly simple move because there was quite a big difference in speed and Sonoda was on those one-stopping. So he was on wearing tyres and he just couldn't get that rear planted. So we won't find out now. If this was mid-season, we might hear about a chassis change or something like that or a cracked chassis, but it doesn't matter because I'm pretty sure he's just going to walk away and never think about that car again. So yeah, absolutely. He mentally checked out, but it's been going on all season. Like just not being able to not trip over Russell. I can't remember what race that was, but he was on the outside and thought he'd cleared Russell and he hadn't. And that's been happening pretty much all season. So is it different? Is it a case of he spent too much of his career fighting at the very top? that just scrapping in the midfield is is a weird thing and and it's not something that's in his his repertoire anymore uh, or is it the fact that once he gets to the top those problems don't exist anymore because he's not having to fight the likes of alpines it was interesting to hear toto get on his radio a few times today telling him you know you're one of the fastest cars on track you're the fastest car on track i didn't know if that was motivation to try and you know get extra points in the constructors or if it was just like a friend trying to be there for another guy who's been kind of going through it all season it was it was very kind of it was just seemed very supportive and and I don't know where that was coming from if you know Lewis has been having a a difficult couple weeks or whatever and Toto just wanted to be there but it was it was interesting to hear Toto on his radio have you seen uh, you've seen Days of Thunder, I assume, with Tom Cruise? No, I and haven't. He's got that relationship with his pit. Ma- what? I know. Okay, I everyone, know. Um, go and follow Meg at, <laughs> at Megan Schuster. Are you at Megan Schuster on Twitter? At Meg Schuster. At Meg Schuster, mm-hmm. and shame her yeah. for not having seen Please Days do. of Thunder. So, so the the coach there, uh, you know, Tom Cruise is there going, I can't, I can't make the move on the outside. The tires won't hold, and he tells him. Don't worry, we've put special tires on your car, wink, wink. And then Tom Cruise goes and does the things. And that's kind of like what Toto Wolf was saying to him. He says, yeah, you're second fastest. Keep pushing. Lewis, you're the fastest car on the track. He wasn't, like, at all. Like, maybe there might have been one lap where he pushed and other people were saving. But at no point was he the fastest car on the track. And in fact, you know, on race pace, he looks consistently about, about two or three tenths off of Russell. So... He never seemed to find his feet all weekend, whether that's a driver or car. And it just is, is interesting that it's always Wolf that seems to come on the radio just to get his chin up, you know? And uh, Hamilton's chin can get very, very heavy when things aren't going his way. For sure. I want to talk about the Charles thing on the last lap very quickly. Do you approve? Do you approve? I of loved those it. My, my one question, potential critique to you is should Ferrari have told him to do this earlier? like maybe a lap earlier. Cause, cause Charles was on the radio pretty consistently asking Ferrari, you know, what is my time Delta to George? If I should be doing anything differently there to try and slow him up or go faster or whatever. And Charles seemed to kind of take it upon himself to do this, you know, trying to give Checo a little bit of a toe with DRS and then ultimately just letting him pass that so he could kind of fly through and not be caught up behind another car. Should Ferrari have been, you know, using their strategy wiles to try and help him out a little bit more here. That's that's where I came away. Sorry, sorry, they're what? Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> their strategy have wiles they, do that don't them? exist, I guess. Okay. Do you know who Ruth Buscom is? The strategist over at Alpha Alpha Romeo uh, has has left Alpha Romeo. So he's has had joined Sauber and has been there for eight years. Announced that she is leaving. So I'm wondering if that might be. The, the solution as a strategist for Ferrari. 
So there was some rumours that, you know, she might be Ferrari or Mercedes bound, but Ferrari clearly needs something because it was so, so passive today. I can point to a few things. So firstly, why didn't they try and undercut Red Bull? Why didn't they try and undercut and pull the trigger on on Verstappen when it, it kind of looked like uh, they were in it for a bit? You know, that they looked like they had pace. Verstappen wasn't galloping five seconds off into the distance. The undercut had, had shown already to be powerful. It's ultra passive to then go, no, 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 let's just let him go and we're worrying about, about Russell. And, and they even, though, they lost on the undercut to, to Russell anyway. Russell closed into about, he was in the DRS when Leclerc eventually came out. So it was ultra conservative. You gave up that big undercut in exchange for very, very slightly fresher tyres. Like, that's super passive. And then the whole tactics with Carlos Sainz was, was really passive as well. So they, they committed to a two-stop early by having a slow tyre. I mean, what was the advantage of going out on the hard tyre if it wasn't to go significantly longer than the medium tyre runners? And I, ha I haven't got the lap chart in front of me, but he didn't pit mega, mega late. I think the last of the medium runners pitted in the early 20s. He came in shortly after that, then had to go onto the hard tyre, and that committed him to then needing to go onto another tyre, and they just sat out there, sitting ducks with no pace, and they say, no, we're just waiting forever for a safety car. And like by the time you got to lap 50, even if a safety car had come, he still wasn't anywhere near... Lewis Hamilton. So, yes, super, super passive. And it just felt like, I think it was doomed. What Leclerc was trying to do was doomed, especially once Perez got the penalty. But you're right. He was the only one thinking about it. So I think something needs shaking up, you know, whether it's a, a Ferrari strategist retreat where they all have to, you know, they get given a rope and a barrel and then they have to get the barrel from one side of the pond with a duck to the other side before the fox and the chicken mm -hmm, eat each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what they need. Yeah. It, it seemed like they came in trying not to lose second place in the constructors and they didn't have second place in the constructors. Like it didn't feel like they were chasing Mercedes or trying to go out of their way to make something happen. It seemed like they were really content to play it safe. Like you said, kind of parking signs out there and just praying for a late safety car that never really seemed imminent on this track. Everyone, you know, was really playing by the rules and this track isn't in lots of runoff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. This isn't like a super chaotic track where it feels inevitable. It, it was very strange. They also didn't let poor Charles do burnouts uh, before heading to the podium. Didn't they? They they stopped. He him. requested it over the radio. He said, "Can I do some burnouts, please?" And they said, "No burnouts. Head straight to the grid." Why? <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you stop him doing burnouts? Like that's such an Abu Dhabi end of season thing. After but everything what, what? he's been through today and this season, you don't even <laughs> let him do a burnout on his way to the grid. Oh my goodness! It's just like, oh, please, please, can I have one nice thing? You're like, no. They, they let him reluctantly have an ice cream, only one scoop after the race, and he dropped it on the floor and they wouldn't replace it because that is, that's what mean parents do. This was also like immediately after telling him, sorry, we didn't win second in the constructors. We got third. So really, really tough day, tough day for Charles and Charles fans and Ferrari. They, they need to change something going forward. So, yeah, well, you know, Charles seems all in with Ferrari and I don't know if Hamilton had retired. I think you drop Leclerc in there, and I'm fairly confident he slots in ahead of Russell in the overall pecking order, but that's not available. That You don't want to take the second seat at Red Bull. 
as apparently Lando Norris turned that down. And I think he's correct. I think he's absolutely correct to turn that down. You you should not take the second Red Bull. There are also the the rumors that I think Christian Horner started that he had said he was talking to Lewis early in the season oh, about oh making God. a switch over. And yeah, Lewis yeah, yeah. pretty much immediately this week said, no, we never talked about that ever. Kind of a weird thing for you to bring up mentioning my name in connection with this. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently it was Lewis Hamilton's dad had had a chat with Christian Horner at some point. So I just want to say now to any other F1 podcasts, any approach from my mum doesn't count as me expressing an interest in any other shows, okay? So that I just want to make that clear. Yeah, it was a weird bit of um of stirring the pot, and some cynical people said that that kept other Abu Dhabi-related things out of the headlines for a little while. So who knows? Who knows? But back to your sh- the shenanigans, I actually, I love this kind of play. So while a lot of my fellow Hamilton fans complained about the Perez defence in 2021... I actually think that was like the least egregious thing that happened that day. I'm all for that kind of team play. Like, I love it. And one of the things I think about when you think about how can we expand the grid and you have three-car teams, I would, I would love the kind of tactics that would evolve around three-car teams. So you could really have it almost like they have in cycling where, yeah, you've got your one main driver and then you've got two people competing behind to be the number one. But in the meantime, they follow team orders and you just have these double-decker sandwiches of teams duking it out at the front. So, you know, this kind of 3D thinking, I think it's fine. I think it would have been okay for Leclerc to have lingered a little bit back, hung around on the odd apex, and he would have had to calculate exactly that he finished 4.8 seconds behind Perez and Russell finishes 5.2. I think that would have been... I think that would have been fair play because... That would have given Russell the opportunity to overtake. So as long as Leclerc was being fair in his defense, you have to look at the rules and you just go, are you obliged to run your maximum possible pace at all times? No, I don't think so. So can you slow down unusually? Well, we've got plenty of examples of, of yes, because Perez wasn't penalized in 2021. Lewis Hamilton did it in 2016, attempted to back Nico Rosberg into... Nico Rosberg's, uh, you know, uh, uh, compatriot, German Sebastian Vettel. And Vettel said afterwards, he goes, yeah, I saw what he was trying to do, but I'm not getting involved in that. So it was all a complete waste of time anyway. So uh, you look, there's plenty of precedent for backing up. And I, I, don't, I don't think it would have been too bad for him to have had a go. So he was, he was trying to give Perez a toe so he could sling past. I don't think there would have been anything wrong if he'd have slowed down, had Russell in his DRS defended legally but not been in a hurry to stamp on the accelerator out of every corner i loved the thought behind it i i didn't love the execution because i think if if you're going to do this one lap is is not enough time given how far back you know checo was and everything but i think this should happen more throughout seasons and i also think it would be very fun and this will never happen because of competitive balance and all the teams want to win and whatever if you are a works team and you have a a team that you, you know, sell your engines to and everything, if you could put a little a little note in the contract that if 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 at any point it were to help us late in the season and you guys are already out of the championship, if you wanted to hold somebody up or make life a little extra difficult, you know, sort of like what Red Bull can already do with Alpha Towery, but if you're Mercedes and you can employ McLaren to do this for you or Williams to do this for you. Listen, I'm not opposed. 
there'll be a little gift basket. So it kind of, it used to happen a lot with, you know, the likes of Ferrari and, and Sauber back in the day. So a Ferrari would get let through, whereas, you know, another team might find it a bit harder to get by uh, for, for a lapped Sauber. And, and as I go on and on about in 2021, all of the non-Verstappen Red Bull cars, so all three of them were, were fighting tooth and nail against Lewis Hamilton to make it as hard as possible for Lewis Hamilton. So that definitely happened. And if there was a bit more balance to it, actually on principle, as a sports fan, that adds an extra tactical element and I don't mind. So yeah, if there was stuff like that unfolded in the future with a bigger grid, I wouldn't get overly upset. I like it. I like it. A bit of 3D thinking. I do too. I do too. It's it's some fun driver strategy too, seeing Charles get on the radio and take a little initiative. Not that uh, that's entirely surprising given who his strategy team currently is to see him having to put that hat on. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Checo penalty, because I feel like we get a lot of these bumps throughout the year, and I don't feel like there's a whole lot of consistency in terms of enforcement in all of this. So I'm wondering if you can explain to me what exactly happened, because he's fighting Lando Norris after a second pit stop. They come through. It seems like Checo was ahead of Lando at the apex. 
seemed to largely be in control of the car. We ended up getting that angle of, of how he was, you know, working the steering wheel. And he did let the steering wheel up just a little bit, but then he really kind of cranked it over to the left. He definitely pushed Lando wide, but it wasn't like Checo was going to go off track with him. Were you surprised at the penalty or what, or was this what you expected? Howling. I, I sort of want to know how you stand on it because also everyone knows that I'm a Perez fan. So it's, there's gonna, it's going it to be tainted. I thought it was a little weak. I thought it was a little weak. I got to say, I, I think if, if you really want to push the issue, yeah, he probably could have left Lando a little more room, but it wasn't like he turned into Lando. I felt like he had the position where he sort of had the right of way on this corner to do what he was going to do. And, you know, if you're Lando, you kind of know what you're doing when you don't leave much room and sort of turn into it. So I I didn't love the penalty. I'm against it. Let me say that. Okay. Okay. So with all my biases out there in the open, I'm a Perez fan and I don't, I don't particularly like Lando Norris. So I, I almost wish that this was the other way around so that I could demonstrate it without everyone just going, oh, yeah, how convenient. Yeah. But I'll lay it out how I saw it. So I think you're right with uh, with Norris. He kind of leapt out of the way like a 90s Italian footballer. It was, you know, there was a there was a tap on the heel and he went down like he'd been shot. So I think there, it was a little bit of drama there. Like once there's the contact made, you know that Perez is is shutting the door. So then you go, oh, I had to take avoiding action on and at the best. So at least then you get to keep your place by cutting the corner, and then you go, well, that's because I was forced off. So you let him keep the corner. And then the bonus was actually it ended up being a penalty. But already online, when I see the arguments, there is there is a, a discrepancy between people arguing with what decent racing rules should be, i.e. always leave people space on, a, on the track. Like if the car's there, leave the car space. There's a discrepancy between that and what the rules actually currently are. So the rules currently at the moment are, if you get to the apex first as the inside car, you're entitled to then go to the outside and the car on the outside is not entitled to room. So this is why I was so surprised by the penalty. If, if you take the apex as the line from the inside where the apex is, and you take a line from there to the equivalent point on the outside, so the apex is a diagonal line. Perez is ahead. He's ahead and by the stupid rules that are being enforced at the moment, he should be able to just sail all the way round to the outside and Norris has to yield. And they've been sticking to that all season. Yet suddenly in this situation, uh, Lando Norris is entitled to, to room. So I, I think not only does Perez make the track here, yeah, there's a little bit of understeer. And you're right, he, he, when he's opening up the steering, it's because you're, you're cranking on steering, but the movement of the front tyres isn't matching that. So that, that's understeer. So you're asking the front tyres to do more than they can do at that speed. So you can either slow down or you can open the steering to balance that out and get rid of the understeer. There's no rule against understeering. Obviously, if he's locking up his wheels and he's carving big 11s down the road, then that's different. But yeah, he's just he's coming hot to claim that position on the apex. But not only was he going to make the corner, he was going to make the corner with, with Norris having room. But Norris wanted more room than that and he wanted to be able to, to, to get a line into the right-hander as well. I'm so surprised that that's a penalty. And as a fan, I want to be able to play I am the steward. And now I, I don't know. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know how they're going to get enforced. And so I, I'm, I feel a bit out of touch with, with the stewards. You know, when, when you're a kid, you must have an equivalent in the NFL 
where you have these little books or comic strips where it says you are the umpire, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I was just going to say, it reminds me a lot of, and, and this was when I was a bit younger, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when the NFL was debating what a catch is. And they ended up having to put a lot of extra language in the rule book to say, you know, the ground can't cause a fumble, but also you need to have two feet in bounds, but also you need to have control of the football all the way to the ground. And you end up just having these like pages long rules to try and dictate what a simple catch is. And I feel like that's what we're doing in F1 now is they're, they just keep adding to this or, or, they're, or they're avoiding doing it. But you just can't have these rules where like from one bump to another, it, it's changing how you're enforcing it. There has to be some level of consistency here and they don't have any of that right now. And it's really confusing for fans because, you know, I posted it on, on Twitter at Spanners Ready, at Spanners Ready on Twitter. So I posted it on there and, you know, people were saying, well, what about Abu Dhabi 2021 where Hamilton was in the Lando Norris position? Why was that not wrong? And go, well, confusingly, because the rules were different then. <laughs> so it's, it's only now that they've introduced this rule where you can just, you know, claim the inside and then go all the way to the outside. That's a silly rule. I really hope they revise it. So I'm happy with, if you're alongside a car, you, know, you just nominate a, a point of a car and why not just say front wheel to rear wheel? If you've got your front wheel overlapping the rear wheel, you're entitled to space because you exist. So, you know... I don't know, or, or some version of that, even if it's halfway, have every car with a bright yellow line at the halfway mark, and you've got to get your nose to that point to be entitled to space. But this, th this, is, this is confusing as it is now. Yeah, there, there has to be some sort of clarification because right now the only thing we really have is, oh, if you're to the apex first, you can do whatever you want. But apparently yeah. that's, not <laughs> that's, actually, not. that's not actually the case because Sergio Perez was at the apex first and did whatever he wanted and it wasn't, wasn't allowed. So some people who just like, you know, that we always say there's different kinds of fans. So I am the kind of fan who the most important thing to me isn't this, the speed. I could have it at half speed. It isn't the danger. I could have, uh, I could have it never on danger. Uh, I could have inflatables all the way around <laughs> with angels that just catch any driver in danger and put them back on the track. I don't need any of that. I like the sporting side and I want to understand the sporting side, mm -hmm. the strategy side. I want that all to be clear but F1 has always been very much, uh, what do you call it, uh, bespoke. Uh, just take it as it comes yeah. and yep. we'll just fumble through because people haven't really cared. It's been kind of a niche sport for, for decades and decades. Well, F1's entering the big time now and, and it needs a proper, proper rule book. Well, and especially with American fans, there's nothing we like in sports more than legislating, officiating, and uh, and complaining about refereeing. So, so if they're going to do this, if they're going to do this, this really is part of appealing to the American audience, I guess, where nobody ever understands the rules, and that's all that we want to talk about. One other quick kind of funny rules thing that I, I don't actually have a ton to say on, but wanted to note was the the rash of pit stop infringements we got today. I think there were Somewhere between three and five teams noted for this, uh, including Mercedes, Red Bull, Williams, I think a couple others, were noted during the race for pit stop infringements, which it was apparently mechanics not wearing proper eyewear during pit stops. I, we're not going to see penalties for this, I'm assuming, maybe some fines. But it was kind of funny to see F1 decide to make a stand on this on the very last race of the season. Yeah, don't talk about it on telly. I mean, it's just like, okay, fine, but it wasn't broadcast worthy. I think the fact that they treated it like any other infringement. So at the time, it was just after Fernando Alonso had done that weird kind of checkup thing 
going into turn five. That was really that was really an odd one from Alonso. You go, what was Alonso fighting for? I guess he was fighting to overtake Leclerc for fourth position, which he managed to hold on to. So well done, Fernando. I guess holding on to Hamilton's, you know, to that lead over Hamilton was very important to him. But it was a very strange and unsporting little move there. I think he tried to claim afterwards that, oh, I was I was actually trying to just let him through. That doesn't sound very Alonso-y to me. So I smell a rat there. So it was like, oh, investigation. Okay, so an investigation between uh, Alonso and Hamilton. The conclusion is Hamilton has a pit lane infringement is what it looked like. And then everyone started getting them. So yeah, that screams to me of... Um, is someone looking for a promotion? Do you know what it screams of? Is when you've got someone in a position, in a job, and they're ambitious, but there's nothing for them to do. And do you remember Phoebe in Friends, where she was put in charge of the cups? Yes, of course. So she got like, she made everything cups out of cups. Cups and ice and ice. She had like dry ice. She had like buckets full of ice. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like Phoebe in the FIA monitoring the pit lane department wasn't being given anything to do. And she was like making her mark. Like, Today... Oh, every pit lane infringement is getting stamped on. Love yeah, it. it had big, uh, this could have been an email energy where if you just it, like went into Monday and, and sent someone an email and were like, hey, you guys weren't wearing your goggles in the pit lane. Uh, maybe don't do that next year. Or we'll fine you. Like that, that's what it could have been. I, I truly, and, and it kept getting noted because the first one was Lewis. And I was sort of wondering before they came through and clarified what it was, like, is he going to get a penalty? Is this something they're going to have to talk about after the race that I'm going to have to factor in into, you know, his positioning and also the points ultimately for the constructors championship. And then when they came on and said, no, actually it was just for the goggles. And then four other notices popped up uh, for other teams. It was, it was very funny. Cups and ice, baby cups and ice. We had a pretty eventful week for alpha towery both inside of the race and outside of the race. This was the final race for Yuki. Yuki we got. That was phenomenal. Uh, final race for Franz Toast, their team principal. He announced earlier this year that he was retiring. They also needed Yuki to finish, I think it was sixth or higher, to overtake Williams in the Constructors' Championship. And so they put a lot of strategy behind him. He had an incredible qualifying performance. I think that was his best qualifying ever. And ultimately, their strategy wasn't really good enough for him to finish sixth. I think they finished three points back of Williams for seventh in the constructor standings. We also got news this week that they are changing their name next season to Racing Bulls, which is something that I definitely won't remember until at least a month into the season next year. But my first question for you is... <laughs> Racing Bulls. Yeah, we, we need to talk about the name. First, though, I want to ask you, what do you think this team looks like next year both in terms of performance and kind of its overall relationship to Red Bull with, you know, Yuki and Daniel being in there and no France toast. Yeah, so I'm not sure how much the France toast, toast thing will affect them because he's been very low-key. He's been quite quiet. You know, he's not like a Gunter Steiner. He's not about to make a comedy series about life in the pit lane like Gunter Steiner is. So he's been very kind of behind the scenes. Now, he seems very well respected behind the scenes, but from all the, you know, goodbye uh, Franz celebrations, one thing was very clear is he definitely wrote an email and a memo at some point saying, can we just not make a huge deal about this being my last race? And no one got that memo. And so he was like, he was dragged out time after time and everyone kept talking about him and to him and he just kept going, yup. I good. Thank you. And goodbye. 
So, you know, we don't know a great deal about him apart from everyone seems to respect him. So always hard to have a leadership change. But I think the team's in good shape because after years of no, 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 they're their own independent thing, completely different from us. We don't have any say in what they do. How, in fact, how dare you suggest that we influence anything they do to suddenly they've done this 180 now of, oh, no, no, of course, they're very much our, our B team. We're going to give them a name which is essentially exactly the same as ours. We're going to stop short of calling them red calves, but basically racing bulls. Oh, my God. Okay, so now they're going, no, no, no. It's definitely our B team. Of course, of course. We've got, we loan drivers to them. It's definitely part of the Red Bull family. So they have the rear suspension of Red Bull this season, or they've, they've got it later in the season. They're going to take as many parts as they can, I think, from Red Bull next season. And, and, and so that might well put them in that kind of Alpine Aston Martin fight by the end of the season. So they're in good shape, I think. Um, you're not going to see what we saw this season. It's going to, it's going to give Williams a headache as much as, any, as, a, as much as anyone. But Yuki Tsunoda has finished P14 in the championship in what has been overall the eighth best car. So it's been right down there. He's still P14. He's got nearly double the points of the other entry. So he's got nearly you know, two-thirds of the team's total points. And points aren't everything unless it backs up the narrative that I'm trying to get across. So, Yuki dominates. I think he's underrated. I mean, has he peaked? We, we don't know. Could he have done better against Lawson? Would he have looked better at that time if he'd have done a bit better against Lawson? For sure. But look, everyone was talking about Ricardo possibly going to Red Bull. To me, it's a no-brainer. Between Sonoda and Ricardo, you would take Sonoda now, 100%. And when you're factoring in the points, that doesn't even include that stretch he had early this season where I think he finished 11th, like, I don't even know how many times in a row. So if if we got our wish and had points all the way down the grid, that would probably look significantly different because he was one place away from having points for a number of races early this season. I, I'm with you that he looks great. He seemed out of everyone to be the most kind of sad by Franz leaving. I think he had a picture of him and Franz on his helmet this weekend, which was very, very sweet and very endearing, even though he, you know, complained about him plenty in, in Drive to Survive when he would make him wake up early to work out. But it seems well, like they you, have... Do you not remember there was this whole thing about him being like wild and untamed on the radio and, and everything. And they literally brought him in to kind of live near Tost so that Tost would like bring him under his wing and, you know, calm him down and, and get him focused to, to be an F1 driver. Yeah, very sweet. My second question for you on this is, was Racing Bulls really the best name we could have come up with? I, and I know this was primarily due to like sponsorship obligations and things. And I think that's why they picked this name. But I feel like there are so many better choices that we could have come up with. Crimson Bulls would be one. I like, um, I like Baby Bulls. Baby Bulls or Red Calves. You could have, I can't believe it's not Red Bull. It's a bit long. <laughs> um, the B team was another one that I came up with. If we we're just going to be really literal with it or support staff would be kind of. Beebles. Beebles. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there are so many better names. Racing Bulls is incredibly boring. And also is the same acronym as Red Bull, which is just going to make it hard for me making notes next season. Bravo Bulls. Bravo Bulls. Yeah. Yeah, but honestly, but like racing bulls is the least possible effort <laughs> really they could have made to come up with uh, with something to to go. The, the message is clear: this is a Red Bull team, and now they're now they're saying 
this is definitely a Red Bull team. And and we have always been at war with Eurasia. That's a 1984 reference. That's a book. I've read a book before. I love it. I love it. I also loved uh, the clarification. Thank you for that. Because I I have... Because I explained you it did. to you. You did. I love an explained joke. You tweeted something about this this week, and I, I wanted to ask you about it. About where F1 should... <laughs> were you nervous when I brought up your tweets? <laughs> like, oh yeah. I'm you like, had a very uh-oh. visceral reaction when I said that. It, it was about where F1 should end this season, because Abu Dhabi has been the ending for a number of years now. But it's not the most exciting track outside of 2021. We haven't gotten really great races here. And that even 2021 had a number of extenuating circumstances that we're not likely to get probably ever again. There are a lot of other tracks that F1 races at late in the year that I think would make for more fun options. You noted in your tweet, Interlagos. I think any of the last you know four races that we've had, even including Vegas now, if they really want it to be the spectacle that it is, if you make that the last race of the season, that adds a little glitz and glamour to it, I guess. But I I just feel like this is kind of uninspired in terms of how we're ending a full year campaign. This racetrack is fine. That's that, do you know what I mean? It's fine. So I was triggered slightly by a media outlet tweeting that, oh, there was a picture of Abu Dhabi and they go, "What, what a perfect place to end the season. And in response to that, Everyone over 35 went, you what? No, it's not. What, perfect? Okay, perfect's a very particular word. If, if you'd have said, here's a, a quite a nice and perfectly adequate place to end the season, I'd have been all in. <laughs> but you can't say it's perfect. When we've had, historically, Suzuka ending the F1 season or Interlagos when it isn't a sprint weekend ending the F1 season. So yeah, I just put a little poll out on Twitter <laughs> saying, you know, would you prefer... Yas Marina or Interlagos to be the season finale. And it was 97% Interlagos. <laughs> and, and I'm so sure that that would, that would be the same if any major kind of F1 media personality had tweeted that out. Like, overwhelmingly, fans would want to finish at, at Interlagos or Suzuka. In fact, I can think of 10 other tracks. Cota, Circuit of the Americas, uh, Silverstone, because now that we can race in one degree Celsius temperatures which I didn't know we could do that before, but Las Vegas proved we can. So we can have the season finale at Silverstone. Thank you very much. So I did feel just like a little bit like someone was trying to take me for a fool by saying, no, it's it's perfect. Because obviously F1 would want you to think that it's been selected because it's the perfect place to finish an F1 season. It's paid to be the final race of of the season. It paid money. And I I get get that people like money because it can be exchanged for goods and services like money's brilliant but uh they they paid to be the season finale over interlagos and it was sad at the time and you go okay so that's fine but don't tell me it's better than interlagos the other thing they tried to do in 2014 is they they were so keen for there to be a season finale and season decider there that they said right abu dhabi will actually have double points so just for abu dhabi you had double points. <laughs> and and that could have decided the title because I think going into that final race, Hamilton would have clinched the 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 championship at the race before had it not been double, double points. So technically, Rosberg might have, have won it in 2014. So yeah, it's not the perfect place. I can, think of t- I can think of 10 better places, but I can also think of 10 worse tracks to finish the season. So Yas Marina is a 
okay place to end the season. I think a lot of my problem with it now too is because it just doesn't make much logistical sense. We've just had four races in North and South America, especially when you're adding Las Vegas to the calendar. That is a 12-hour time difference between Vegas and Abu Dhabi. Have you seen next season's calendar? This, Yeah. So this year you're going from Vegas to Qatar to Abu Dhabi. And especially this year, asking drivers to do that, going from, you know, Vegas where they have so many extra commercial opportunities and, and requirements and things. And then you're asking them to make a 12 hour time difference and race right away the following weekend. I, I think that must just be brutal. And we heard, you know, I think Esteban Ocon was sick a lot this week. George Russell said he was, you know, kind of coughing throughout the race today was just has been feeling under the weather for the last couple of weeks. I can't imagine that's an easy transition to make when you've been racing for, you know, 23 race weekends across the year. And then you get into the final month and you have to go from, you know, three race weekends in a row, and then you go to Vegas and then you immediately have to go to, you know, either Qatar or Abu Dhabi. That seems really miserable. Oh my goodness. They've got three triple headers to end the season next year. So you've got a triple header. I think if I'm doing my maths right, you've got Austin, Mexico, Interlagos. So you've got that as a triple header. Then you've got a couple of weeks break. And then it is Las Vegas, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, bang, bang, bang. That is gonna, that is a crippling schedule. Truly, truly nightmarish. I, I hope and expect that drivers may, may complain about that next year, because that, that's a tough way to end a season that already runs from March through November. Yeah, so the first race of the season is, is um, March 9th, yeah, and that runs then all the way till December 8th. So selfishly, I'm, I'm glad that's a small amount of time without F1 races. Um, but yeah, I do, um, yeah, I do wonder how that's going to go down with crew, and I think it's only going to go get, get worse. So that's 24 races on the calendar with no real risk of of cancellation so if, if shanghai looks like it's more likely to be on the calendar in 24 you can't rely on floods every year at imola to help you out on the on the schedule so what's it like for the crews are they going to have to start mandating like numbers of races for pit crew so you go right derek you've you've done your your, your 20 races for this year you've now got to sit out the next four yeah a lot to consider anything else from this race specifically specifically before we get into kind of the season as a whole? I, I think just like, from a race point of view, it was it was reasonably ordinary uh, in that, okay, so the one stop wasn't ever going to quite work. And uh, so a lot of teams went went for that. So I, I've got to, you've got to think at some point, Signs was going for a one stop. And then halfway through, they kind of realized, oh, these, these hards aren't taking us to the point where we can strap mediums on and go. So I think first off, you know, that's, um, that's an error. And if you look at the fact that like signs only needed four points, so he wouldn't have needed an awful lot to have put Ferrari second in the championship here. So, so that's sort of negative. Sonoda maybe threw away one, nearly two places if Hamilton had got past at the end, trying to make it go. So it, it really was a really unspectacular race. There really wasn't a great deal going on. And there wasn't a lot of really a lot of wheel to wheel racing either. I think the, the, the politics at Alpine was interesting. So I don't know yes. why Ocon suddenly got an undercut and a massive undercut. I can only suspect that they thought, right, let's cover off Hamilton with Ocon. And then they didn't realize how how strong and how powerful the undercut was going to be. 
because Gasly lost like five seconds or something and suddenly he comes out behind them and he goes, whoa, whoa, what's going on? What's happening? Uh, but yeah, he wasn't he wasn't happy with that. But I think he got the preferential treatment for the second one. But what's just interesting is how quickly Gasly gets upset if, like, when he had to give up a place to Ocon, I think in Suzuka, he was very upset with that. I think they've kept it under wraps, but their rivalry, their inter-team rivalry, seems really, really personal, and I'm looking forward to seeing that unfold next season. Did it start in Australia when they hit each other in Australia? I, I was going to say, it, it's been pretty dramatic, and I don't know if maybe having a shift in team principle and not you know, having much consistency... At, at the top of the organization has contributed to that at all. Maybe there aren't a number of adults in the room who are willing to tell these guys to mellow out, but it has sort of been a season long thing. And I think it's flown largely under the radar because they just haven't been very competitive or dramatic as a team as a whole. Like their, their positioning in the, the championship standings has seemed sort of foretold since, you know, maybe a, a couple months into the season, but if they have a, a decent car next year and those two are battling each other a bit more, that, that'll be really interesting. So less than the relative position of Alpine because they're not going to be fighting for a championship. So less than that, it's a career thing. So reputation-wise, any driver on the grid should be looking to go and beat Ocon. So you go to Ocon, you beat him comfortably, and then that launches you onto the next thing, yeah? And Ocon will also be looking at Gasly going, this is an opportunity to prove. If I show that I'm comfortably faster than Gasly, my reputation goes up. So I think both of these drivers now are really gunning to be, I'm the number one out of this pairing. And that is why Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes, you should be looking, if, when you're looking around next time, you want to be picking me. Because I, and I don't, I know my, my I've got a close friend who's very, very much an Ocon fan. But I think if you get shown up and schooled and show to be, shown to be the slower driver against Ocon, I don't think that does you a lot of favors in the driver market right now. I love the idea of Ocon as sort of the, this is a baseball stat, but like the wins above replacement guy, which is just sort of the baseline of like, if you're positive in that stat, then it means you're better than the average player. And if you're below in that stat, it means you're less than. And I, I think he's an apt driver for it, honestly. So I, I had a reputation in a, in a former life as the, the beep test guy. And so if... If I was still going on the beep test, you know, we have to do shuttle runs to the beep. If I'm still going, you, you'd better still be going. But once I've dropped out, you're probably, you know, safe when it comes to meeting the standard. So, yeah, some, somebody is the litmus test of the, the benchmark where you should be. And that for Formula One is Esteban Ocon. Congratulations, sir. Just really quickly at the end, because I'm feeling nostalgic now that it's the end of the year, what are your lasting kind of legacy memories going to be of this season outside of Max? Because... Obviously, that is a huge one, and the Dutch national anthem will haunt my dreams all throughout the offseason. I've heard it far too many times this year, but I feel like there are a number of sort of images from this season that I will kind of remember. One being, we've already talked about it, but being Australia and, and the chaos and carnage of that, and that is probably also my lasting memory of Alpine as a team outside of uh, Otmar getting ousted. Not a great memory for them, but I, yeah, what are yours? I, I think it's sort of been the return of Alonso to the, to the top stage. That was one of mine too. And, and him, yeah, because he, he could easily have, have retired on, on top or realised it wasn't going well at McLaren and gone. That, nobody would have begrudged that. Like, oh, I took a roll of the dice, went to McLaren, it, it didn't go good. And, and well, he did retire. 
What am I talking about? He did retire, didn't he? He went, and then he sensationally came back for Renault when it was still Renault, right? And then and then he ends up at, at Aston Martin. But he really did show that with a car underneath him, he, he he can be competitive. And like he's been wheel to wheel with with Perez in Interlagos, and he just he just looked so good. He looked like he knew he's sharp. He knows his way around a racing situation, and he, and he's got raw pace. I would be so fascinated to see a return match now, Hamilton versus Alonso in the same team, just to see what the relative pace was. Because my suspicion is that that Alonso is still like as quick as ever. Like, and, and I don't know how he's doing it. Me and Alonso, where I'm older than Alonso, but he's just the hope doesn't seem to have faded in his eyes. And you know, like I see when I look in the mirror, like, well, how is he still? How is he still doing this? If you look at the points table. Fernando Alonso has 206 points. So two Fernando Alonsos would be P2 in the Constructors' Championship. P2. Yeah, they would have been in that fight today. In fact, they finished P5. And that's just, that is A, that's, an, that's, that's something you need to look at. When you go at Aston Martin's season and Alonso's season, and you say, despite the fact that they didn't keep up with development and then when they did develop they went in a completely wrong direction and messed themselves up despite that their top driver was going well enough to be the equivalent of p2 in the championship so actually maybe aston martin did a little better than we're giving them credit for and certainly fernando alonso has been pulling off miracles in the upper midfield there so i think that returning to the to the to the top stage is brilliant but it just highlights like what's going on at Aston Martin, how long are they going to stick with Alonso on 206 points and Stroll on 74 points? How long can that keep going? That's that's a few dozen million worth of prize money. So, I mean, it's pocket change to them, isn't no, it? No, I, I, I've been floored by Fernando this year. He finished fourth in the Drivers' Championship, tied in points with Charles Leclerc, but I think he was ahead on, what is it, like second and third place finishes as sort of the tiebreaker? Oh, is that how they do it? Yeah, so he's fourth. Yeah, yeah, and he did all of that with only two podium finishes over the last half of the season, one in the Netherlands and one in Brazil. So, I mean, that speaks, too, to, like, how wonderful he was over the first half of the season, but also that he, even with a car that was definitely trending down across the second half of the season, he got everything out of that that he could. But for even if you forget about where and when he scored points, wherever he's been fighting... He's been fighting well. He's been having good races. And, and if you really want to know how well he's done in a race, ask him. Because he, he'll tell you how well he did in a race. But he's still ruthless. Even today with that silly checkup and finding all the little loopholes in the rules, understanding where you can cheat but not cheat. You know, he's still, he hasn't gone into like Papa Vettel mode where, where Vettel's like, uh, well, my strategy for this race is, oh, have you seen my B hotel? <laughs> You know, so Alonso isn't doing that. And Alonso seems to do still, you know, a lot of off-track racing. He's got his own car track. He's, you know, he's still very much heart and soul all in. So, yeah, super, super impressive. I love to hate Fernando Alonso. I want him up there fighting so I can cheer against him, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, and that is the funny thing, too, is as much as, you know, we talked about Lewis early in this podcast, maybe being a little bit checked out, not getting the results that he wants. It doesn't really seem like Fernando is motivated by results as much as he's motivated by just wanting to crush other people and wanting to have the best race that he can. And I think 
you know, that's a mentality. That's why he's able to do this at 42 years old is because he just wants to go out there and beat other people. Unless he's P12 or below in the final third of the race, then he passes. Well, yeah. I mean, who among us? Who among us wouldn't want to do that, you know? (laughs) Uh, oh, I, I like a good sit down, but he's already sitting down. Yeah, I think my my other main legacy of this season is going to be Vegas, for better or worse, uh, and, and what that's going to look like going forward with all of the investment that F one is putting into that. That's going to be a, you know, in their eyes at, at the very least, a crown jewel for them going forward. And if they can iron out some of the issues that we had this year, uh, it'll be a very interesting, very interesting experiment. I think over the next decade. So is, is F1 in good hands with Liberty is, um, is the question I will insert into your face on your behalf. And you go, I mean, it's just so, it's so different. You know, it's so unrecognizable from the F1 I grew up with. This is, this is not your father's Formula One. Uh, this is something completely different. And it's been kind of an education in how America goes about sport. So there's an adjustment. And I, I hope the rumors about a sale and, and it going to the Middle East aren't true because I I want to see where Liberty is going with this, and if the 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 push for show over sport settles down because I I wonder if they've come in and they've gone there's just not enough show there's not enough uh, pizzazz there's not enough cashing in on on the entertainment side and you can't argue that they haven't orchestrated this massive boost in F1 fan numbers yeah and they've done it by making it exciting. 90s Formula One didn't take off and capture the American imagination for a reason. Yeah, and, and that's because race reviews would have been about 20 minutes in, in the 90s, in the olden days. So what did you think of that one overtake that one time? I, I was actually, uh, I was napping for that one, Meg. I missed that one. F1 was a Sunday afternoon nap sport. Um, so, you know, the old guard, the old sweats like me, can't sit here clutching our pearls over the fact that Things have been zhuzhed up for the for the show. It needed it. It definitely needed it. But does it come to the point where the sport catches up? The sporting importance catches up with it because this is the first season where I've gone. Well, okay, and this is Abu Dhabi twenty twenty one aside. This is the first season where you go. Oh, they really do seem to be prioritizing. You know, the hard line of of money, and then the razzmatazz and the viewer figures. That is over the sprint weekend. That's the that's one of the ones that's really got under our under a lot of people's skin. So I, I accept you have to do those things to grow and, and be a business, but at some point they've got to drag the sporting side up along along with it. So I'm not actually like mega pessimistic about what Liberty Media are doing. I think if they get the stewardship of it long-term, F1 will be in a good state. Yeah, I, I think that's a really fascinating question. And I think something that's going to have to be a part of that going forward is what the sustainability of this is because they're it seems like they're going for big growth right now especially in the american market and other markets and you know if we keep seeing seasons where max verstappen is running away with this is that spectacle going to be enough to keep those new fans is there going to have to be some other change like you said to to make it more competitive and to increase the sporting aspect of it is that what's going to be what keeps these fans in after they're drawn in and I don't totally have answers to those questions but how they go about trying to figure that out is going to be really I think indicative of of where F1 can go ultimately the timing of the Verstappen dominance is is really unlucky in this plan and as much as they try to tell us no 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 it's fine like this happens in formula 1 and that's true it does there, there is no doubting that from a competitive point of view, 
this has been one of the dullest seasons for, for a long, long time, even compared to other not competitive seasons. And that doesn't mean the on-track action hasn't been good, that some of the races haven't been good, but, you know, there just hasn't been that same level of excitement. You know, you look, you look at the see. I'm just looking at a list of, of winners, and it is Perez winning race two and race four, and then Sainz wins in Singapore. Uh, but then... You know, if Perez is, if Verstappen is is just winning every other race, we've had dominant drivers and packages in the past, but we haven't had that kind of conclusive inevitability since 2013. It's unlucky, and I think if the FIA and F1 haven't been doing something in the background to close that gap for 2024, I think that would be incredibly foolish. And I'm not saying nerf Red Bull to the point that they can't win the championship, but if they haven't done something to bring the teams up to the point where at least there's there's some competitive races, it will be a miss, a huge miss. Lots to think about over the off-season spanners. Only 97 days, 97 days until we get our next race. That's just about three months. Do you think we can make it that long? I don't stop talking about or thinking about Formula One uh, during the off-season. I love churning out my streams, churning out my content. I'll still be you know tweeting and arguing with people online about Formula One and exploring there's i mean i'm sure you and i will will jump on the microphone at some point as well because there's a million things to explore that you don't get a chance to explore during the regular season because of this drumbeat of of races week in week out so no i will still be obsessed but what i don't have is the spousal fencing off of sundays now (laughs) so so i've got like three months where they go ah no f1a and the calendar gets filled up uh, very quickly with dad taxi and social engagements. Ooh. Chilling. Very, very chilling. Yes, we will be back very soon, almost assuredly. Thank you, Spanners, for joining. Thanks to Olivia Creary for the production help. And thanks, everyone, for listening both to this episode and across the rest of the season. This has been The Ringer F1 Show, and we will be back to talk about F1 very soon. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.